Hello and welcome to Radio, uh, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. Um, Radio is produced by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa. Um, and my name is Ross Drakes. I'm your host today. I'm sitting here with Renan Ayres, uh, the CEO of Student Village. Welcome to the show, Renan. How are you doing, Ross? Very good. Very good. All the better for being on the show with you. Flatter. <laughs> um, I suppose just to give our listeners a bit of context, will you give us your 30 second business pitch? So, here's our spiel um, our company is called Student Village, and we help connect companies and students with opportunities, and in turn, we create a better South Africa. That's quite a good quite a good pitch. What do you mean by connect? Like, how does that, how does that work? So, what we do is we work with large companies and they either need to market their products and services to students um, which in turn builds their business and um, the other side of it is we help them to um, recruit graduates or give bursaries or internships to students that have graduated. Okay. Um, uh, just as a weird side note, I read a very interesting article recently about um, Internships, unpaid internships. I'm not sure how you, how do you feel about unpaid internships um, in South Africa? Should you come in with a sledge? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's, that's a longer discussion on its own. Okay. But basically what you have is um, quite a weird system that has been set up for some degrees. You have to have a level of work experience um, to get your degree. And um, most companies don't or there are not enough companies providing internships. And so it kind of creates what the cynics would say, this is the new form of slave labor. So companies looking for interns and they can get skills for a short amount of time for free. Mm-hmm. And, and most people are saying, well, why don't you pay? You're benefiting yes. um, more than maybe a student is benefiting. So my kind of thing is it, it creates... I'm, I'm, I'm neither here nor there. I'm not a, I don't, I don't have a fixed view on it, but what it does really provide a student is it's, it's kind of like a dating, um, a dating game for a student that if they could go to a few companies, they get to see what they want and what they're passionate about and companies benefit from the cool energy that comes in for of students. Yeah. I mean, I, I, for, for my sins, I lecture at a few of the universities and students always come and they ask you, they're like, what should I do? And like, I never, I only did internships in my last, in my the third year of my three-year degree. And I think, you know, I, the earlier you get out there into the marketplace is, I think, better because you get that kind of a real picture of what the industry is like as opposed to the bubble that can often be when you sort of studying and what you believe the world yeah, to be. I, I agree with you because the, the nature of being a student is is you're kind of unaffected by reality to, to the most sense. You're living in a dream world and you're thinking of this, the workplace as this idealistic setting and environment that you're going to go express yourself. They're going to be so grateful to have you and that everything will be easy and all you have to do is get through your degree. What an internship does is to some extent inform your dream and to bring it down to earth where it needs to. So when you get there and everyone treats you like you know nothing, because generally you do know nothing, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's devastating. Yeah. The fact that you have a degree and no one really thinks that's so cool is also the next thing. And then and then in terms of most most students don't 
the time while they're studying, they don't appreciate what experience means. They don't appreciate the value of having work experience and having five years experience. They, in their minds, the fact that they're coming out of a degree that's recent and they think that they're going to be valued a lot more than someone that has uh, experience. experience. So I think let's just jump back. Um, I was very interested, uh, like in the structure of your business, it's almost like you you want to own the idea of the student and you don't mind if it's if it's selling students to people or selling stuff. To, you know, you're almost like, you're like, we'll specialize in this category and we'll kind of provide whatever it is that that can can be provided around that. Was that a deliberate this, thing? Or this is a, the secret to internal youth is you just hang around with young people. <laughs> <laughs> um, for us, we were always interested in, in the world of students. Like we remembered when, when we were students and it's, it's like such a formative time in someone's life. So you're either leaving home for the first time, you're making the money that you get is all disposable because it lands in your account and you're deciding, okay, what now? So you generally don't have fixed bills. So no Everything bonds, is, no car payments. Yeah. No. So that's what I say. You're living in this dream state. You get this money, although it's never enough. You kind of make do with what is, or you hustle in a way to make more. Mm. And and then you start exploring things. So, what toothpaste should I buy? What beer am I drinking? What should I do at month end when I get that SMS that that money's landed? You know, should I go huge that weekend, live like a king, and basically live on? on eggs and water for the rest of the month. <laughs> <laughs> so we're fascinated about that world, the, the world of making new choices and and as well as prepping your career for that trajectory of, of your entry point. So what should I be doing while I'm studying? Should I be um, volunteering? Should I be um, getting myself into leadership positions? That all those kind of all those kind of other decisions in, in bringing out someone who's actually work-ready, we love. So we love understanding students and we love giving them the, the ideas on how they could best set themselves up for success and eventually land them their first job. That's amazing. Um, how, long, how long have you been doing this? I mean, can you give us a bit of the, the story of how you, how you got here? So it's an interesting story. I first started at uh, a bank. I decided... Uh, I was tired of studying, but I, but I still wanted to further my study. And uh, I think, you know, at the time, it was the late 90s, and we thought the, the gold rush was definitely in financial services. So going from King David to Vitz to Investec just seemed like a natural progression. <laughs> <laughs> so if you weren't going to go to, at the time, Kessel Feinstein because you were becoming an accountant, then... But then our Grant Thornton. Yeah. Then obviously you were going to Investec. And I, being an East Rand boy, I, I kind of had an affinity towards the bank. That's the, the founders were from there. And um, I spent three years there. And within the first year, I'd already thrown out the notion of studying further. I just thought that was just insane. I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't manage my time properly. And I realized I just wasn't passionate about what I thought I should be studying. And so in those three years, I also realized what I did and didn't want. And by the end of the three years, my stint there, I realized that internally I was dying. I think I, I had my midlife at 24. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
many people would actually argue, have you come out of it? And and what I what was what was really good for me was was I used everything that frustrated me in my in my time at the bank, and everything that really gave me joy. I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to create a company that that imbued all of those things that that the things that frustrated me I made sure I didn't I didn't replicate the things that I really liked um, in terms of culture in terms of how we look at things having a niche so that's what I learned that's what I learned about at the bank so when we started a business in a specific niche that really did well for us so think about the time I don't know where you were in the year 2000 were you born I was I'd just been born. No, in 2000, I was living in the UK, um, behaving very, very badly and going to music festivals and um, singing cocktails in, in central London. Okay, sounds similar to maybe what I was doing in Joburg. <laughs> <laughs> there just weren't too many festivals. <laughs> no, yeah. So if you think back to the year 2000, where the, the world looked very different. So not everyone had a mobile phone at that stage, and certainly if you were a student, you didn't. Mm. Um, Google didn't exist, Twitter, Facebook, all of these things that are just commonplace to us now, they didn't exist. So our great idea at the time was, what happens if we created a national community of students? What happens if we, we networked everybody because students, no matter where you're studying, 80% of what you're doing is homogeneous. So you're making, you're studying at the same time, you're generally partying at the same time, there's exams. Oh, so whether it's like Poch or Stellenbosch or uh, Boston campus, yeah. it doesn't, ma- doesn't matter. You, you flippy Kate or Tabo, you're going through the same thing at the same time. Mm. You may just be in different places and there are little nuances on how you may do things differently. You all listen to music, uh, you may just be listening to different music. Mm. So all the things are, are currently happening at the same time and you're making brand choices, you're, um, you're really dreaming about your career, you're, you're going through the same kind of angst. So we thought, well, what happens if we unite this community and let them connect with each other? Um, we all bring them opportunities in the forms of cool deals with brands, um, internships, graduate positions, all of those kind of things. And we would do it on a website because that was the cheapest way to do things. We, we, it was a partner myself and we, we had left our jobs at, at the bank. And so what we used to do in the morning, we thought the best way to start to get our heads right was, was to really apply ourselves with, with a good game of garden cricket. We felt that was the way just to get our heads right in the morning. Okay. And then we'd split up the rest of the day. We needed to speak to universities to, to get them on board. We used to speak to venture capitalists, try to raise some money. And then we'd have to go and knock on doors and advertisers to sell the stream of how they could connect with this, with this audience. Well, as luck may have it, every venture capitalist laughed at us. Thought, you're leaving your jobs for this? This is like nonsense. It was at the same time, season... One of the dot-com world was, was imploding. So yes. The dot-bomb world. The websites. The, the term yeah. website was a dirty yeah. word. Uh, and we, we were the laughing stock. So I, I even remember like, pulling up at, at Robots in Joburg where, where there's always beggars. I remember it, like we were a few months into it and I remember seeing a guy with a bulge of change in his pocket and thinking, hang on, 
this guy actually makes more than me. (laughs) 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 And, but we really believed in it. We really believed there was a story there. And, and so we, we plugged away at it and, and we just hit our first bit of good luck was, was at that stage in 2001, Nedbank, which was possibly the, the uncoolest bank in, in South Africa, decided they wanted to be cool, they wanted to appeal to youth, and they wanted to be connected with technology. In walks us, and we sell this dream on, on cardboard storyboards on this is what's going to happen to Nedbank, and this is how you're going to become cool. And it just was just like this luck, this absolute luck and timing that, that they like just bought into it. We had like brainstorm all these ideas that we had no idea how we we're going to fulfill, but this is what we could do for NetBank. And I said, okay, let's do it. And effectively, they they were our VC partner in the beginning. Oh, wow. Because what they paid for actually paid for the development of the site and, and paid for, um, they paved the way for us to start the business. I suppose, I mean, that's that's quite an interesting one because there's so much of this uh, talk online about kind of like startup culture and failing quickly and failing on other people's money. And, and I think what you've just described is one of the more traditional routes, which is kind of almost bootstrapping it and, and figuring it out as you're going along and building building what you need when you need it as opposed to trying to hit that kind of ideal. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, we were... If that's old school, we were so old school that we were working out of uh, my friend's bedroom. And at that time, we had one phone line, which his father prepared, he was prepared to pay for six months. But that same phone line was our email inbox and our fax line. So you couldn't do any... I had to like dial in. Yeah. Are we checking emails now? Okay, well then you couldn't send a fax and you couldn't do anything else. If you're now wanting to phone prospective clients okay well then you can't check email and you can't send faxes and that was our kind of life and 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 then two became three became four and we're all in this bedroom all sharing one line all and it was it was quite a crazy kind of environment at the time we also took our pensions um and after three years working in a you know very low level job um, that's not much. <laughs> <laughs> Especially once they cane you for um, pulling it out early. Yeah. And <laughs> if I remember, the quantum was probably about 30 grand or th- between 30 and 35 grand. And so we each put that in. We had our, um, we went to, so we had our, our kind of our telephone and our office kind of expenses taken care of for six months. I'd asked uh, my parents to pay for stationery. And so that was our kind of startup capital. And that's, that's how we kind of fought out of there. And how big are you? How, like what does Student Village look like today? So currently we're, we're about 35 people full-time. We're a few hundred part-time because we have students in the field. And we're currently launching in India, which with our new partners, Smolin, they've got a big operation there. And we're busy rolling out Student Village um, in colleges across India right now. Oh, that's amazing. Um, how did you, I mean, how, can you elaborate a little bit how you got from Johannesburg or South Africa to, to India as your first first big global expansion? Um, generally via um, Emirates. Okay. <laughs> so um, we, we always thought 
we were we were kind of big fish in a small pond. And like if we really wanted to scale Student Village, we either had to buy other companies that were doing similar things. And there are really not many in South Africa of, of scale that are, are doing similar things. Or we had to extend out of what we currently do. And every time we did that, it kind of never really worked. And the, the other opportunity was to say, well, if we believe that what we do is, is world-class and we understand the mind of a student, then why don't we expand geographically? And so we did, what we did over the years is we did work through Africa with some of our clients. So we do great work in South Africa and they say, well, can you do this in Nigeria? Can you do this in Kenya? And we would do that. We just never set up an office. And every time we got close to, to setting up the office, um, just kind of something got in the way and it was like, okay, that's not a great idea. So our general thing was grow with our clients and then we didn't have any base costs or anything. We'd find a local partner and, and do it together. And then we did a, a deal with Smolin and they happened to operate in, in over 20 countries around the world. And together we looked at the first market to what would what would be a fertile ground for us to, to start Student Village. So you think like, why India? So India has a huge, I mean, their, their total youth population is probably about five times the size of the total South African population. Just the youth? Just the youth. Wow. So the, the student portion of that is probably about 50 million, where here it's a million. Yeah. So just in terms of scale, I mean, it's just... 50 that, times larger. Yeah. Um, it probably 500 times more complicated, but it is larger. And so really what we're doing there is we, we, we believe in influence. If you really want to um, get a message across, if you want to move the needle for a brand, um, we feel the peer-to-peer -peer method, and whether it's a physical influencer or a digital influencer, we feel that's like the most effective way um, to create change um, in that exchange between a brand and a person. And so we've been doing that here for years and it's kind of our signature dish. And what we're doing in India is very much the same kind of model, but that's on, that's the only thing we're doing. Here we, we do like we've got quite a broad offering. Mm. There, that's going to be our limited offering and that's what we're doing. And I suppose you'll grow that, you'll grow the offering over time. Yeah. And so India is a really exciting opportunity for us. It also helps that they that it's English speaking. So in every state in India, the local dialect is almost like a different language, but English is a common common theme and it helps to have the local partner was just to navigate um, the local nuances and the way they do things. So I mean, different. talking about those nuances, have you found, you know, so you, it sounds like you've kind of developed a little bit of a methodology or an IP or like something, you know, like there's a little student village special source in here about understanding students and how they interact with each other and how they influence each other and how you can tap in and out of that. Um, how, how is that, you know, you've, you've taken that part and parcel from South Africa to India. Does the same methodology and IP uh, like work in both both countries or have you had to sort of adapt it and change it according to the Indian context? Yeah, so we, we're just writing out now, so it's probably too soon to tell. Okay. But 
The one, the one thing that we, we always tested ourselves is, do we understand students globally or just in South Africa? I've had the opportunity to, to visit um, campuses throughout Africa, China, India, the UK, US, wherever I go, I, I go and visit uh, campuses. <coughs> and what we've realized over time is that within 10 minutes, you can we kind of know, we can suss out exactly what that campus is about, the culture, the vibe, the opportunity, and and what's going on. And I don't know if that's just because we've been in the business for a long time, but we've kind of tested it and we kind of get it. Our whole thing with, with our methodology is we're just creating a way to bring out a powerful exchange. We're not saying how you must connect with each other. We just say, if you do X, Y, and Z, um, and the way you do it, you add your local flavor, you're going to get a very powerful exchange between, between students. Uh, you take the brand with you, so you've got a highly social, resonant student, someone who's really popular or has a lot of pull, whether it's on, on the campus or, um, or on social media. And we teach them ways on how to communicate and basically be an enhanced version of themselves. Okay. And that just creates a very powerful, powerful exchange. And the brand goes with for the journey. I think there's, I mean, there's two lovely thoughts that I'd like to kind of unpack. I mean, I, uh, my business, Nice Work, is a, a branding and communications agency, and I look at the world through things like signage. You know, I can't, I can't go anywhere without noticing what the design aesthetic is like, what the color choices, or the fonts. And it seems like you do the same thing, but with students and campuses. So you, do you actively go and seek out kind of students and learners wherever you go? Is that? I mean, is this your your lens that you see the world through? So, I mean, you you are very accurate in 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 seeing what student village is. So you mentioned that we get students. So that whole thing that it's, it's it not every student is the same, and companies really appreciate that we get to understand the nuances of different students. The other thing is the way we access them via our networks and relationships at campuses is 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 brilliant. But more than that is we, we understand both, we like stand in, in different shoes. So think of us understanding the world of a student, but we also understand the world of companies and brands. And so we love them equally. So whether we spend our life, half our time trying to understand students, so what makes them tick, Another side is we, we really understand what brands want. And that's so, it's kind of like we've got dual lenses. And I suppose that's where, that, that's where your magic lies, is yeah. that you can live in those two worlds. Yeah. Um, on a previous episode of Radio, Rich and Adam Toll were talking about the concept of um, understanding your craft, but then there's also a counterpoint to understanding the industry or the place in which you apply your craft. And it seems like you've got that balance quite nicely, understanding you understand the students and the way they think, but you also understand the industry and the kind of commercial reality in which they they the students and the people who need access to the students kind of live and you can put that together which is is yeah. nice what's quite interesting is is the industry may may look at us as gurus and as true gurus what we realize the more we we think we understand we realize how much we don't understand and that's that that's what keeps it interesting with the world of students is mm. is that there's certain things that are are the same 
but it's such a fluid market and that's where trends are set. So there's always new stuff happening and, and you've really got to stay on top of it because what worked two years ago potentially may not work. Today? Yeah. I mean, I love that, you know, we, we teach at Nice Work is, is this idea of like always learning. You know, you can't exactly like what, what, what worked for your brand yesterday doesn't necessarily work today. Um, and I love that you always, you know, like you're saying that you in there and you've got to kind of, you've got to keep reinvesting in the students and keep putting in the time and keep kind of keeping your eye open because that stuff is sort of changing. Um, do you want to pull out a couple? I mean, for some people, what do you think some interesting trends or, or things are coming out of the, the student base at the moment that they might not know about? So one, the one thing I'm, I'm always fascinated about is the new entrance into the workplace. So what's coming through universities and into your doors at your office? Because we, we came up with this term, it's like actually quite cool to, to actually own a word. It's almost like I never believed that we would own a word. And we, we turned a local millennial to be an Afrilennial. And we're always fascinated what's what are the similarities and what are the differences between the um, you know, a millennial in Boston, in Lagos, Joburg or Mumbai. And what what really that gives me a buzz is trying to understand them from a workplace point of view. So we often get calls into companies saying like we really spent a lot of time in our recruitment of our new graduates. We're so excited and they're so energetic and they passed all the tests with flying colors and that's that's towards the end of the year. So they, everyone's very excited in November and by the time they come in January or in February, we start getting calls from the employers to say, I don't know what happened. We were so excited and now they're like aliens. How do we get them to be like us? Yes. And that's, that's where there's a huge disconnect in the workplace. And what do you think that is? What do you like? So I think it's, we play the role of, of helping each side understand each other. Because it's almost like we're, we're doing group therapy. And that sense of, I think everyone's holding on to their point of view. So we're, we've been in the workplace for a long time. We have it. We have it. Whether we, we like to admit it or not, we, we've actually firmed our view on how the world should be. Mm. Here come the new dreamers into the workplace thinking like, surely I don't have to be that. This eight to five business. You want me to come into the office every day and sit there to eight to five or nine to six or whatever it is that why can't I do this at home? And like we speak so freely of these digital natives, people that have been brought up on technology well, most of these, and why are they so lazy? Why are they so entitled? Why are they so... And there are elements of that. But they're coming to the... They're coming to fix the mess that we created. And they're coming in with these beautiful skills of... They actually could sit on the couch and still be as productive and be in their pajamas. And often there's an inflexibility from the employer's perspective. So from us as entrepreneurs, we want people to be like us. We're like a bunch of narcissists. So... We're looking to hire people exactly like us, where the new stock coming through is not old school. A lot of it is they're looking for co-creation. They're looking for the workplace to seem like a coffee shop more than um, offices and very rigid ways of doing things. What they what they don't come up, what they don't arrive with, 
is this resilience muscle. So they've got atrophy or dystrophy, whichever whichever way you look at it. So yeah. every time they get negative feedback, you know, it flattens them. I call it like there's a mourning period. And so better work out ways of giving lots of feedback. But in a way, like if you think of, say, um, um, the voice um, or idols. So how would Simon Cowell give you feedback versus Pharrell Williams? Pharrell would be really encouraging it show you your strengths and what it could be where Simon will just mow you down. Yeah. And so most of us have brought have been brought up in the Simon Cowell generation and the new generation just they don't doesn't respond work. to that. Just doesn't I mean how many of this new generation do you think have watched idols? I can't answer <laughs> <laughs> but they would know. So if if you spoke about it, they would know. And when we show videos of it, like like different um, examples, like they really get it. And so there's a there's a huge amount of tension in the workplace. It's just like who's holding on to their beliefs so dearly, and and there's such an opportunity to have reciprocal learning. Mm. So those that have experience really impart a lot of wisdom. Um, young people really have like this thought of just like the immediate gratification of likes on a post or um, anything that happens in their world, they could just Google and they get the answers. They feel like the, traje- the trajectory of their career would happen at the same pace. So it's, it's terrible. It's like the first year of work is so hard because they realize the company owns their time. They don't do things the way I want to do things. and. I have to do things I don't necessarily enjoy. Yeah, I studied all this time to do this, like, and and this notion of I want work that challenges me. Well, you know, I, I think I think a lot of young people um, think of challenging work like a Hollywood sex scene. Like every day, it's the music's going to be playing. It's going to be like this romantic notion of work. Like I've changed the world. So this anything repetitive is now thinking it's not challenging. There's, yes. no, there's no desire to master what you're doing. So if you think of the sushi chef in Japan who works the art of making the best nigiri. Yeah, they just cut tuna every yeah. day for 50 yeah. years. And just try to do it perfectly. Here it's more about the tick box. Okay, I can do that. What's my next challenge? I want to do it forever. And so... It's a very different way of looking at it. I know you said some interesting things there. The one was that people are looking, like they're looking for challenge. You know, they, they, they want to be challenged. But earlier you were talking about the fact that they have no no resilience. Um, it's interesting to me, one of the things we value the highest in the people that work for us is, is we call it grit because sometimes it's not easy. You know, sometimes people are not giving you what you need, not because they're trying to sabotage you because they don't have the knowledge. Maybe they don't have the awareness. Maybe they, they haven't come around to where they need to be in order to give you the inputs that you need to do your job. And you almost need to fulfill the role of being the one that sits there and kind of hammers through it while they're getting frustrated and angry. So do, do you think this generation or this, this new generation coming in is lacking that? Do you think it's something that's that's been trained out of people? Or, I mean, what do you think that that is? So you're a new father, right? Yes. I want you to start observing, and obviously it's a bit soon because it's a newborn, how we bring up our kids. So generally we were brought up in a more 
um, rigid environment and and there were kind of we heard no a lot and we had to figure out a lot of the world on our own and and we actually give like there's a strong weighting in our mind about people who are self-starters um, the new generation have been brought up very differently so if you think about, like I always think of, I was, I was once called to my daughter's school because she was getting a sports award. And, and this, this daughter of mine is, is obviously a genius, um, but the one thing she wasn't at the time was anything to do with sports. So yeah. I was so curious that she was going to get a sports award because I wasn't sure if she played sport. And <laughs> the only way she could get one if she had an arrangement with a friend who happened to play and she had to go to the practice. <laughs> so I went to assembly and I just watched. And to see that everyone in the class got some form of award for sport. Oh, 100% of the people. Yeah. And only about three or four of them had to do with anything any remotely to deal with skills or actual achievement. Winning the award for identifying a yeah. cricket bat correctly <laughs> is. <laughs> so so this, this kind of thing, and they speak about helicopter parenting and all that, but basically we're, we've created this notion of these highly needy kids who really don't make decisions on their own, really need to be guided the whole time, and they need validation almost every step of the way. And this is coming through our front doors at our office. And so the, the extra load that, that is required by your managers or by yourself in managing this high energy bunch is they give high energy, but they require high energy. To Back. Yeah. And it's, that's like the hidden cost of, of this generation is they want to do things differently but to keep them aligned, to keep them resilient, to keep them um, um, producing the best requires a huge amount of investment in time by you or your management staff. That's such an interesting thought. I love this idea of the hidden cost, this energy exchange that has to go down if you want to get the most. And I mean, do you, uh, I suppose, before we switch this up, do you think that energy exchange is worth it? Do you think the, the outputs are there when, if you were to do it? Or So I always say, well, if you think it's going to get better, there's already millennials that are, that are managers. The new batch coming in are even more radical. Yeah. So if you don't get it right, first of all, you don't, you don't have a choice. We have such a young population. Yeah. You're in, it or you're in it whether you like it or not. Whether you're going to hire them or they're going to be buying your product. It, this, is, this is the way of the present and the future. It's more how quickly can you adapt to it and, and, and really nurture them and bring the best out of them. I like that. So let's, I mean, uh, you've you're been a member of um, the Entrepreneurs Organization for a long time. Um, and I know you're currently investing a lot of your time and energy in Accelerator. Um, I don't know if you wanted to share a little bit about kind of Accelerator and what you're doing and, and what, what keeps you giving up your time from your student village vocation in multi-locations to invest in in the Accelerator program? It's kind of a, a weird notion if I said the best part that I get out of EO 
beyond my forum is is the leadership. So it's like quite a tough sell on on an entrepreneur. Why don't you give up a chunk of your time and just volunteer for an organization that you pay to be a member? That you pay to be a member. <laughs> and, and there's no there's no explicit upside. But just give of yourself. And I've found that the most amount of satisfaction that I get has been either at a local board level creating something new, which was an accelerator program from scratch. And now, um, and part of the reason around that is that very rarely in our business or in our personal lives are we surrounded by A players. So it's so refreshing to be able to sit at a strategy summit and decide this is what we're going to do people actually go out and see it through to completion. And you're just surrounded by good energy, good people, you get great ideas. Mm, and that completely different perspectives, yeah. well-considered, well-thought-out perspectives that you never would have arrived at on your yeah. own. And, and one of my dreams in life is, is really to be global. So I really want to make a significant um, difference globally, but I, I really love residing locally. Yeah, And so... So taking the path of leadership globally um, through EO and growing my business at the same time globally has, um, EO has actually led the way for me. So I'll give you an example. It's from after I set up the, the accelerator chapter locally, um, my next role in leadership was a region and part of that region was India. So it just so happened that we were looking at, at starting the business in India. And so at any given time, I was either going for India and included student village stuff, or I was going for student village stuff and did some EO work while I was there. So it was complete in sync, and I just felt that my worlds were aligned, and I managed to get um, a lot of help from um, the local EO members in India. So it was, it was a brilliant thing. What I'm most excited about is for the next two years, I'm the global chair for Accelerator Worldwide. Can you just, just for the benefit of listeners who might not know, can you give us the 30-second pitch of what Accelerator is? So EO Accelerator is a scaling up program. So it's a structured program run by EO and it and it's, uses the, the Gazelle's methodology, which is Vern Harnish's methodology. He's one of the founders the of founders EO. founders of EO. And, and this is all to help give tools and learning tools and accountability um, for entrepreneurs that are really looking to scale. Um, the cool thing is you only need about $250,000 to start in terms of turnover, but it, you know you can be a business at any level. If you're wanting to scale, the methodology works right through. That's amazing. So, so coming back to you now on the global, the global um, committee, what is, like, what is that work going to look like for you? So it's interesting. So I, what, what I love the most is, is, that, is that it's run globally, but from Joburg. And the sense of that, that working with a high-performing board and, and almost implementing ideas that would have a benefit across the world for me is, is, is very appealing. And like for me, I didn't choose this world. It's, like, it's quite a weird thing to think like, if you had to ask me 20 years ago, what you, how will I make a difference to the world? It certainly wouldn't have been, I'm going to work with entrepreneurs, helping them scaling their businesses 
And the offshoot of entrepreneurs getting it right is that many, many people and other businesses are positively affected. Yes. So I've kind of stumbled upon something that was um, requested from me from a previous EO president, just do this, and it's unleashed this whole set of an unintended consequence of, of really making a difference to the world. So for me, it is, it is so, so cool. I mean, I love, I love that statement around kind of the impact of what the work you're doing is, but I, I'm not sure if it is as unintended as you want it. You know, like it, it sounded like you've engaged in the path of leadership quite strategically. You, you know what you want to get out, you know, not what you want to get out, but you know the reasons that you're doing it. Yeah. And it ties nicely. You want to be global. You're moving into a global role. You know, the two kind of mirror each other quite nicely, although they might not necessarily be fulfilling each other, but it does um, tie together on a, on a conceptual level quite nicely. And I think the mirroring of the success in India of the Accelerator Program and Student Village is, is a nice example of how that played out. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, the thing to stress is that, is that I've never sought position it's kind of by always, as, a, as an opportunity presented in EO, I generally look at it and as the door opens, I'd say yes. Yeah, just put your hand up. And I never said I wanted to be, uh, I never stretched to be anything. I just wanted to make a difference in any portfolio that I served. And as, as I put my, my mind and my effort towards it, another door would open and I'd say yes. And that's all I've done. I haven't sought to get to where I've got to. You've just ended up there. Yeah, I keep I keep you on finding a reason to say yes. Well, that's amazing, Renan. Um, thank you very much. I think we we're out of time, but I think that's a lovely thought to to end end on. Um, I like to um, just kind of put it out there to people. Uh, I, I love this idea of investing in this new generation and kind of nurturing that talent. And I think uh, it's it's my challenge and it's your challenge. And I think it's everyone who's listening's challenge. So I'd like to put that out to you to kind of look at the people in your organization and any new people that are coming in and, and think about how you are nurturing them. How are you helping them? to deliver and to perform the way you need them to be um, you know is that is that something that you've spent enough time and energy on because it's not going to sort out itself so thank you very much for listening um, you've been listening to Radio which is a podcast by the Entrepreneurs Organization in South Africa um, quick shout out to our sponsors thank you very much Bidvest Car Rental um, and Bidvest uh, Automotive. Um, I actually recently bought a brand new Nissan and got a massively decent deal off it. So if you want to, looking for a new car, I can highly recommend that. Um, and LabourNet to help us with all of our, anything to do with HR that you need and exec care for making sure that you are healthy and aware of your, your health challenges. Um, Renan, thank you so much for, for being on the show with us. Absolute pleasure. Um, and I'd just like to steal a moment to um, throw a shout out into the airwaves to Rich Mulholland. I hope wherever you are that your hair is ridiculously spiky and people are looking at your pecs. Um, thank you for listening. And I would hi- like to encourage you to share this with a friend if you enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Ciao.